Welcome back to Pursuing Justice. I'm Harriet Hendel. Today, we have a guest who's devoted his life to helping those who've been wrongfully convicted of a crime for which they were innocent. Jim McCloskey founded the very first Innocence Project in the United States, and he named it Centurion Ministries. It's in Princeton, New Jersey, and it began in 1983. He's also the author of a new book called When Truth is All You Have. Welcome to the program, Jim. Well, thank you, Harry. It's my pleasure. I've, I've been looking forward to, to speaking with you on this in this medium. So um, Me uh, we have a lot to talk about. Yes, it is wonderful to have you as my guest today, and indeed, we have so much to share with our listeners. Take us back to the early 1980s. Was there any awareness on your part that there were people behind bars who were actually innocent? What was your own feeling about that issue back then? Well, uh, when I first met, uh, when I met the first man that I eventually started working for, uh, in whose innocence I had come to believe, I was 37 years old. I was a former businessman and Navy officer, and I I had never I had no experience whatsoever, in any way, shape, or form with the criminal justice system. I've never been to a courthouse. It was my view at that time, like most people that I thought America's criminal justice system was practically flawless in that if you were convicted of a crime, surely you did it. And <laughs> not only that, but the police and the prosecutors would never, would never bring anybody to the bar of justice uh, who they didn't have solid, credible evidence was guilty of that crime. So I had a very, I was never on a jury. If I were, I probably would have had to recuse myself because I would have had a strong presumption of guilt going mm -hmm. into it. Very interesting. Now, you didn't set out to create an organization which was devoted to helping those who were wrongfully incarcerated. What were you doing before you founded Centurion Ministries? Well, uh, when I graduated from Bucknell University at the age 22, majored in <laughs> economics. Uh, went on to become a, uh, an OCS-trained uh, Navy officer. I spent uh, the next three years in the Navy, half of which was in Japan and the other half in, May, in the, the Mekong Delta of, uh, of Vietnam as an advisor to the South Vietnamese uh, Navy, patrolling the rivers of the, Del of the Mekong Delta. And then for the next 12 years, I worked for two, uh, two, two uh, management consulting firms. One was in Tokyo. And uh, I would I would work with Western firms wanting to enter the Japanese market and do market research and consult with them as to how to do it. And then the last half of my 12 year business career, I came home to Philadelphia, where I was born and raised and worked for another consulting firm called Hay Associates. And uh, my my responsibility was to build its consulting business with Japanese uh, subsidiaries operating in the United States and establish our office in Tokyo. So that's how I spent my first 37 years, so to hmm. speak. But then how did you take such a different path? Well, what happened was um, 
in the 1970s, when I'm in my 30s, um, I had led a, a rather, uh, oh, I don't know if you want to call it reckless, but um, I wasn't happy with my personal conduct. Um, <laughs> I was, I was, to say the least, uh, among other things, promiscuous and not very careful about my, my behavior. Uh, I look back on it, and I was, as I was reflecting on it, at that time, it was very, I, I lost my moral compass in terms of not business dealings, but just personal conduct. Um, at the same time that was going on, um, I was starting, my, my, my business career was going fine. I was making good money, had a nice house on the main line of Philadelphia, and was traveling the world doing, doing the work that I thought I, I loved. Um, but at the same time, Percolating within me were two competing forces. One was um, I started to lose my passion for the for the uh, for the uh, for the for the business world. Uh, material things meant nothing to me. Um, I, I thought I, I, I didn't feel as if I was having a. I felt as if my life was shallow, self-serving, selfish. I wasn't doing anything for anybody else other than myself and, and, and the corporate and the, my employer. Uh, so that was percolating within me, a certain uh, alien. I felt alien, alien, a certain alienation to the, to the world about me. Like, this is not real. This was not what life is really about. This is not the truth of living. And at the same time, I returned to church after a long hiatus. Uh, my, for, for the first time in my adult years, and um, I belonged to a, a Presbyterian church, and the minister there was very, uh, very influential with me in terms of his message of the gospel, which was to serve others, to wash others' feet. Um, and I started to take the gospels and the scriptures and my church life very seriously, um, to the point where I started to think about, wait a minute, is God calling me to leave the business world and become an ordained church pastor? Because that's what my pastor was doing. He was really, I saw that he was touching the hearts and souls of people, and I thought that was a purposeful, authentic life. And so I felt the call to leave the business world and go into the ministry and therefore go to Princeton Theological Seminary, get a Master of Divinity degree, and one, that's a three-year program. And once I got that, uh, once I once I accomplished that, to go on and become an ordained church pastor. So that's what those forces were at work within me. And um, uh, I wanted. I also felt, you know, I'm, I'm actually living this hypocritical life. I'm I'm having this spiritual uh, development, but at the same time, I'm carousing around. So it's time to. <laughs> It's time to take one foot, take the foot out of the secular world and go into the spiritual world and uh, announce who I am. Who am I? What is my identity? And that, that really compelled me to feel a call to go into ministry, uh, which I did in 1979 by, so, going to the, by going to the Princeton Seminary. So that pastor that you knew was, um, would you say he was a catalyst for the change that occurred in your life? Without a question, without a question. No question, my name is Dick Streeter. He's still with us. Oh. Uh, he's retired, he's retired, 
but I still stay in good contact with him. And uh, were it not for Dick Streeter and his ministry and his preaching and his counseling of me, when I was struggling with this decision, and it was a struggle, uh, I told no one. I didn't tell my family. I didn't tell my friends. I, I told nobody except counseling with Dick about, Dick, I'm feeling this call to, to give up the world and go into the ministry. Um, and he just gently counseled me, told me to go into the scriptures. I'll find the voice of God within those scriptures. And that's exactly what I have. What, mm. That's exactly what happened. Because right. when I was... Uh, yeah, Sorry, go yeah. ahead. Go ahead, Jim. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say... Um, so I would, the, the, the scriptures, Old and New Testament, were my meat and drink. And, that, and, and there were several, several things that really drove me to this, to this decision. Uh, I'm reading the words of Christ in the Gospels, and, and he said, He who saves his life will lose it, and one who loses his life for my sake will find it. And then I went to the Gospel of John randomly one night, the last chapter, and the resurrected Christ is speaking to Peter. And he tells Peter, when you were young, you walked where you would. When you become older, another will gird you and take you where perhaps you don't want to go. Well, that was me. When I was young, I, mm -hmm. was, I walked wherever I wanted to go. I did whatever I wanted to do. And so now it was time to give up that life and go follow Christ and go into the ministry. Mm -hmm. uh, so the ministry, though, um, didn't take you down a traditional path. How? What's the connection between what you chose to do and prison? Well, here's what happened. So I'm, I'm at mm -hmm. the seminary getting this Master Divinity degree mm -hmm. with the intention and the objective of getting or becoming ordained. And you do your field education work. I could do it at a church, a, a hospital. Uh, and I volunteered to go to be a student chaplain at Trenton State Prison. There was, a, there was an agreement between the seminary administration and the prison administration that every year they would accept student chaplain, student chaplains who would uh, be assigned several cell blocks and just go cell to cell two afternoons a week and just meet and talk with the inmates about whatever they wanted to talk about. It was not evangelical or anything like that, just mm -hmm. to be their friends, to, uh, to be somebody from the outside that they could have some kind of contact with. So I volunteered for that program in the September of 1980, and I was assigned two cell blocks in the maximum security unit uh, for the school year. And uh, it was during that, that work, as a student chaplain in the fall of 1980, that uh, I was responsible for visiting with 40 different men and 40 each confined to their own cell, pretty much 24-7 because they, they were in the maximum security unit. One of those 40 men, one of them, was constantly proclaiming his innocence. And that man's name was Jorge de los Santos, nicknamed Chiefy. He was in his seventh year for a Newark homicide, all he talked about was the fact that, Mr. McCluskey, I didn't do this crime. I'm an innocent man in prison. I'm doing life in prison for somebody else's murder. 
And uh, I had a very, initially, I had a very difficult time believing him. Because uh, at that time, as I mentioned a little earlier in our conversation, as far as I was concerned, if you were convicted in a court of law, you were guilty. And there was no question about that. And um, so I had um, this was my encounter with with him. And over time, I'm talking about September, October, November, um, um, he's constantly talking about how he didn't do it, how the police and the prosecutors, not only that he didn't do it, but that they, he was framed for it. Um, so th that was my initial encounter with an innocent man. And if you want me to go on about that, I will. But um, Yes, I would very... Very much like um, the story of Chiefy. Of course, I've read your wonderful book, um, and you talk great, great deal about him. So tell us um, more about how you seem to gravitate towards Chiefy. Um, did, did that mean that you spent less time with the other men, or you still uh, spoke to well, them? That's, that's a very good question, Harriet, because I had to be careful. I'm on mm. that pier for three or four uh, hours every Tuesday and Thursday afternoon. And I, you know, I, I, I got along with the, most of the inmates and they wanted to talk to me. They enjoyed talking to me. I enjoyed talking to them. Um, so I had to be careful about how much time I could spend with, with, with Chiefy about his case. But I also did, I broke the rules. The rules were don't ever get involved. Don't ever discuss or in any way connect yourself with the inmate's personal or legal uh, casework, legal mm -hmm. life. Um, so, but I gave, he got my attention. First of all, he and I got along really famously. Uh, he was very gregarious, had a great personality. Um, he was easy to be with, had a good sense of humor. I always looked forward to getting up to his cell. But like <laughs> I said, I had to be careful of the other guys. But I did something I, sh I, I should not have done. It was completely against the rules. And that is I gave him permission to call me at mm. home. They could, they could if, any, if any of the inmates want to make a call, they could ask the guard to bring him a telephone if, if it wasn't being used, and they could make a call collect. But oh. nevertheless, I spent a, a long time over, over the three months. Then finally, um, he, he was convicted. Uh, well, I got hold of his trial transcripts. And there were 2,000 pages worth of documents. Oh, my God. Over, uh, over, over Thanksgiving of 1980, um, I took these transcripts home and read them. That's all I did during those four days of, of holiday. And um, they pretty much confirmed what he had been telling me over the two prior months, namely that he was convicted based on the testimony of two people. An eyewitness claimed that... He heard gunshots when he was passing by, and he saw Chiefy, who he knew. Chiefy was no angel. He was mm -hmm. a heroin addict, and he was a man of the street. He never killed anybody, but he was a heroin addict who lived that life to, the, to its fullest. And uh, the eyewitness who claimed that he saw Chiefy flee the scene of the crime along with another man who he also identified, uh, they were fellow drug addicts. Um, and, and then the other the other uh, witness against him was another heroin addict from Newark, who, who, who Chiefy knew from the streets as well, Richard Delasante. But Delasante, as it turned out, and we later learned, was a career informant for the Essex County Prosecutor's Office. If, if he had ever uh, 
he always had a, a bunch of outstanding uh, uh, crimes and, and charges and arrests on his rap sheet. And if he ever got convicted and ended up in state prison, he was a dead man. I'm talking about Richard Delasante, the career criminal who told Chiefy's jury that Chiefy confessed to him when they were in a county jail together. So these were the two star witnesses. Um, so I read the transcripts and I had a lot of questions to ask Chiefy when I came back from Thanksgiving. I did. We had, a, we had hours of conversation. And finally, finally, now we're in December of 1980. And he said to me, he said, you've asked me a billion questions and I've answered every one. I said, he said, do you have any other questions? I said, no, actually I don't, Chiefy. He said, let me ask you a question. <laughs> do, you believe I'm in, do you believe I'm innocent? And I said, well, yeah, I do believe you're innocent. Then he said, and this is what really got me, it shook me, what are you going to do about it? <laughs> I said, what do you mean, what, what, what am I going to do about it? I don't know anything about I, I don't know anything about murder, investigation, legal, lawyers. I know nothing about that. I'm a former businessman, and I'm currently a seminary student studying scriptures and church history and theology, for God's sake. <laughs> he said, and by this time, he's, we're call, he's calling me Jim. He said, look, Jim, I've been on my knees for the last six years praying to God to bring somebody, somebody to connect with me and help free me. You might not know it, you might not want it, but you are that man. <laughs> I believe God has brought you to my cell to free me and exonerate me. That's so then he, then he said, and this is what really got me, what are you going to do? Are you going to, if you believe on medicine, are you just going to go back to your safe, secure little seminary and pray for God to, to, find, to somehow find somebody to free me? That's not going to get me out of here. God works through human hands. Your hands must be the, the pair to, to free me. And so he was that so really sure. shook me. He, he challenged me. I mean, it, yeah. was a, it was a direct, he did it in a good way. It wasn't a hostile or a, or yeah. a threat, threatening, or he just did it plaintively. Um, and uh, so I went back to the seminary, Harriet, with that. And uh, I went to where I usually would go, and that is back to the scriptures. And I happened to open up, as I'm deliberating on this and reflecting on it, I opened up Isaiah 59. And in, in Isaiah 59, when I read what I was reading, I was, uh, I was struck by it. Because Isaiah talks about, um, he talks about how truth has fallen from the public squares, that there is no justice, and justice is turned is far from us. We look for justice, but there's none. The justice is turned back. The Lord saw and was displeased that there was, and wondered that there was no one to intervene. So when I read that word, mm. intervene, I thought that was God's way of telling me, you are to intervene on behalf of Mr. De Los Santos. That's why I brought you there. That's why I led you to his cell. Now go and try and free him. And, and I made and, that this yes. And how were you supposed to do that without any law experience or any anything? Well, that's another good question. And um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I didn't I didn't really think it through like that. I should have, but I didn't. I just felt so so passionately 
for this man and his predicament. And I just felt that I was called to, to do what I could to do to free him. Now, to answer your question, well, so, so, but I had to finish the semester. I had final exams coming up in January. And I told Chiefy, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take a year off starting February 1st and from school, independently. And I'm going to work that full year solely on working on your case, trying to find you a good lawyer, maybe find an investigator. And as it turned out, I did the investigation and raise the money to try and free you. So that was my focus for the next 12 months from February of 81 to February of 82. Uh, now, but here's, here was my dilemma, Harriet. And as a parent, I'm sure you can really appreciate this. All right. Don't forget, it was just a year and a half prior to December of 1980 that I had told my parents and my family and my friends that I'm leaving the business world and going into the ministry. Well, they were all shocked by that because I had not consulted with them. I had given nobody an indication that this was in the offing. So that was a year and a half ago when I, <clears throat> when I stunned my parents with that decision. And by the way, they were surprised and, and uh, somewhat skeptical, but they supported me. Now I come back to my mother and father, and I have a sit-down with them because I'm now going to tell them that I haven't, I've made another decision. I'm going to take a year off from school, but don't worry, Mom and Dad. Don't worry. <laughs> when I return after the year, I'm going to finish my education, get my degree, and get ordained as a church pastor. But in the meantime, I'm taking a year off, and I'm going to work to free a man I believe is innocent. He's in prison for murder. He's got a life sentence. He was a former heroin addict out of Newark, but I believe he's innocent. Well, you can imagine. Yeah. I mean, you know, they rightfully thought, maybe I've lost it. <laughs> but again, after some conversation, they, um, they, they supported me, but they were, especially my mom, she was, and I hadn't thought about this. She said, well, Jimmy, if you do this, first of all, what do you know? You don't know anything about murders and investigation and, and the law. What are you going to do? And besides that, she said, Newark's a dangerous city. I'm going to lose. I won't be able to sleep at night, just like when you were in Vietnam. I couldn't sleep. Well, I hadn't thought about that. But still, as much as I felt for my mom, that did not deter me. And I decided to embark on this path to, to try and move the ball forward to see if I could help free Mr. De Los Santos. What a great place to close up our discussion here. And Jim, will you come back and talk to us um, and continue your story about how this case unfolded? Are you able to do that? Sure, I'd be happy to, Harry. Ah, uh, that's wonderful. All right, so I am just delighted that we have begun this fascinating journey of the uh, formation of Centurion Ministries, which right now hasn't been formed yet, but we will find out some more in our next podcast. So please tune in as uh, for our next podcast. And Jim, thank you so much for being with us today. And my listeners, see you next time on Pursuing Justice.